Hey, this is John. Let's Talk Native is now on Patreon. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. We will be producing exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. Thanks for checking us out. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Seva, and uh, welcome to the program. And uh, thank you for joining me for the next hour. Uh, I'm going to talk about culture shock. Now, I know this is this was almost a trite expression a few years ago, but it's not something that's talked about as much anymore. And what I'm talking about kind of refers to what I've referred to in the past as the cognitive dissonance of assimilation. And that's a really complicated <laughs> you know, set of words. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that cognitive dissonance is this idea that your your behavior doesn't match your core values. And when you're talking about assimilation, these are behaviors that are imposed upon people. Now, look, most people could say, well, that, well, that happens all the time. People have their, their behaviors adjusted by society and that kind of stuff. But the reason I wanted to talk about culture shock, I think people have to, have to almost begin to understand how dramatically different Native culture, our culture, um, was, is, compared to European culture. And to understand just how dramatic this assimilation, this forced assimilation, um, and these lifestyle changes have been, you you have to understand the differences, I guess. And so, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the distinction between what Native life was before European contact, and then begin to understand a little bit how dramatic the change had to be and why this culture shock, the, the shock of an imposed culture upon our people would turn into this cognitive dissonance or this intergenerational trauma that people talk about. It's not just, it isn't just the murder and, and the, 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 you know, the real egregious or, 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 um, uh, crimes against humanity committed uh, against our people. It's not. It's not just those things. These these heinous acts. It's it's the whole change in in, in our lives in general. Uh, everything from you know confining us to one spot uh, and you know, reducing the lands that uh, you know that we were that we were free and free as a distinct people within. So I want to talk about some of that. Let me let me start with the family. 
Look, our, in, in our culture, and the reason we, we talk about the Haudenosaunee being a clan system is that our families were extended. It, it wasn't this concept of mom, dad, two and a half children, you know, one cat, two dogs, or whatever. It, it wasn't this American ideal of what a family was. Our families were extended. I mean, and, uh, and you know, they usually followed, a, you know, a, a mother's line, a matrilineal uh, uh, relationship. But again, it wasn't over-institutionalized, but our, but our families were extended. The idea of a longhouse was that we had these long structures that entire families would, would live in. So, look, I, I know people say, yeah, well, we have our grandpa that lives with us, or we have, you know, this family member that lives with us. But those are, are the exceptions of the world. And, and to the extent that many cultures have had breakdowns in the families where grandparents are raising the children because, you know, of single parenthood or whatever else. That's not the same thing as an extended family. Look, and we do see some of this stuff. I mean, people, when they, when they make light of um, uh, Mexican families, you know, having large amounts of people living in one household, that isn't just a poverty issue. And, and that isn't, you know, all the negative connotations that go along with that, that has more to do with the indigenous culture of, of having extended families with close family relationships, not just visiting once a year on holidays and that kind of thing. So the idea that, that our families were extended and the imposition of the nuclear family, what would, what would become known as that, was was a big change and it caused a lot of separation separation anxiety look when we when a mother would give birth a, a young mother would give birth she would have all the women in her family around us that's still something and, I, and i've talked to to some native doctors especially some native OBGYNs, who said we understand we understand the uh, how traumatic it is for a for a young woman to be whisked away from her family to go to, to a hospital, especially when you're talking about some of the native territories out west. Uh, Navajo territory comes to mind. When when you're when the closest hospital is hours away, and so you have to go because if there's any complication, if you can't give birth at home with a midwife or something like that, you are whisked away, and that family connection gets severed at one of the most critical times, not only for, for a young mother, and, and we could argue whether, whether a baby, uh, an infant, it, it, you know, realizes any of this, but it, the baby may not, but the rest of the family is, is, is separated from that, from that child at that, at that critical time. So this is, is a huge difference. And, 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 and I'm not saying that all native cultures are exactly the same, but this this notion that that we could have a family that um, uh, normally could consist of you know twenty or thirty people within a community and reduce it down to down to you know mom dad and two and a half children a cat and a dog I mean that's that is what the expectation was and in fact the pressures were put on families so much to to reduce this extended family notion and and I'll tell you why. Part of the reason is it is much easier to convince smaller groups of people to accept a change uh, or, to, uh, or to, to accept you know, uh, the imposition of something on them. It's easier to convince one person than it is to, uh, to convince 100 people. That's why this, this whole um, emphasis that was always put by Europeans on, well, who's the leader? We only want to deal, who's the chief? I mean, take me to your leader. We don't want to deal with the people. 
we we need to have one person that we talk to because they don't nobody wants to deal with it with a group of people when you're trying to imp uh, impose something on them so uh yeah, this this protection that you get and the security that you get from an extended family was wiped out by again the cultural imposition of reducing what you can consider your 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 family to um, to a nuclear family. And in fact, again, housing structures, longhouses no longer became the the places that we lived. Uh, we might build a big structure for for meeting purposes. But I mean, when well, uh, we still see them. I've talked about this on a couple of shows. You can still see uh, in a few places these really tiny um, log cabins, uh, hand-hewn be beams, um, and you know they they literally fit, uh, meet the the definition of a tiny home. And and families were raising that. Uh, you know, usually you know, again, uh, you know, parents and and the children were ra raising these little cubicles. That was a change. I mean that was a dramatic change for for how our families functioned and 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 how we lived. So, I mean, we whether anybody wants to associate this with with, with a, a trauma, uh, it, it certainly did change things. And 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 again, this idea of changing relationships. Now you take that into you know to the next step when you start with that separation. What you do is you you eliminate. The um, the standards, the family standards, the you know, how do you hold each other accountable? Well, if you're you know this whole idea of a, of a man in his castle and what happens in the privacy of my home, that's where all of a sudden we don't hold each other accountable. We don't we're we're not responsible to or for each uh, each other, and so that changed uh, much of the cultural dynamics of uh, of our families. And you know so when when alcohol comes into a community. Look, what happens in the within the four walls of a tiny home is is something that you know, that the extended family has, doesn't doesn't weigh in on the neglect or abuse of, of children, the the abuse of women, all that stuff uh, is able to happen because of the change in the, in the family structure and the, the family unit. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to downplay the significance of of, of that difference in the extended family versus the nuclear family, especially when you've had thousands of years, depending on that, that social interaction that comes from your, that extended family. And then of course, even from family to family, as far as a community or a nation or, or however you want to define a, you know, a distinct people. So right there at that level, and, and this is something that's rarely talked about, this idea of changing the family structure. And that was an imposition. And of course, along with, with, with things like alcohol and, uh, and, and some of these other things coming into our territories, the, the idea that, that a dominant force around would actually take children out of those families and put them in residential schools. And by changing you know, how they, uh, you know, what, what their identities would be. Again, how much you can influence an individual household, that's how churches were able to have effects on, uh, within, within a home. Uh, there's also a lot of this um, uh, of Christian dogma that comes along with this idea of the nuclear family, honor thy mother and father. Well, what about the rest? I mean, so there's this sense that that this European slash Christian notion of what a family was um, was what was dictated by that culture, so to speak. Now, you know, when you, when you see an extended family like this. And, and, and when I say that there was a culture shock, the culture shock went both ways. 
I mean, a, a lot of what Europeans, when they saw how Native people lived, they it seemed so different to them too. And that's why they could dehumanize Native people. Well, that's not the way human beings live. And that's this whole idea of dehumanizing. And, and when I say dehumanizing, let me be clear. This isn't just this idea of, um, of not recognizing somebody's humanity. It's the idea of looking at a people and say, saying, I don't think that you meet the, our standard for what a human being is. So you could actually treat somebody differently because you don't think that they're, they're, they're fully human because they haven't reached your level or, or, what, or what you perceive as your level of civilization. So all of that stuff, you know, fits in there. So, and, and I, I know that I, <laughs> I come out of the gate talking so much about family because family is, is a critical part. Look, the, the Haudenosaunee, we talk about the, the, um, the clan system, but we, it's, it's 49 families, 49 extended families that constitute the, the circle wampum of the, of the Haudenosaunee. That's how important and how, how integral the notion of family was to, uh, to, to our culture. And of course, uh, to, to further emphasize uh, the, the significance of family, we related uh, ourselves to, to all of creation as, as again, uh, metaphorically as an extended family. We talked to the, about the grandmother being, uh, the moon being our grandmother. We talk about our, the eldest brother being the sun. We talk about the, the winds in the four directions being our, being our grandfathers. You know, these are, you know, these are the, the way that we relate, we relate to the stars, our most distant relatives, our cousins, if we will. We, the, the animals, we refer to them as our, as our relatives. So this idea of, of relationship is, is an integral part, an inherent part of, uh, of, our, of our culture. And when that gets changed, and people start denying, saying, well, that's not true. You know, um, you aren't related to such and such. And, you know, there's, you know, there's the animals and then there's human beings and, and the, the relationship between the two. Uh, and, th and this is the imposed culture that was, that was uh, again, the culture that was imposed upon us. So, you know, I, I know that I talked a lot about family, but, and, I, and I'll probably come back to that, not only today, but in, in future shows, because it's an, it's an incredibly important part of who we were. And it was completely disrupted with this notion of the European standards for family and the nuclear family and, and, and the role of all that stuff. So, again, I can't, I can't minimize, uh, you know, the significance of it. You know, food. Um, that's another place that that is a dramatic difference. We 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 were um, um, farmers. We, we grew food, but we were hunters and we were gatherers as well. Uh, we you know we we grew crops in a certain way uh, that you know that allowed us a certain mobility, so to speak. Um, oftentimes we would. We would summer in one area and winter in another area to to take advantage of you know of, of, of climates that were more tolerable. That got stripped away. That got taken away. The idea of you know of having our lands reduced to where the, this uh, this idea of being a, being able to hunt and gather in larger areas. Look, you reduce the area, all of a sudden the the resources, the natural resources become depleted. You don't have the same uh, amount of, um, of wild vegetation that you can be, can be a part. Yeah, you can still farm. And see, that whole thing got shifted towards uh, not just um, uh, growing food, 
but the idea of domesticated animals, animals that you know that were much higher in fat content and that kind of thing, that kind of thing, instead of the the higher protein, lower fat content associated with with wild game. So all of that stuff changed, uh, and you know the the idea that we would both have a significant land bases and good clean rivers to fish and that kind of stuff, all that stuff changed, and you know the and it's not even that. Um, our lifestyles changed, but the migratory patterns of, of, of animals that we depended on uh, not only as food, but oftentimes we, we depended on uh, certain signals and cues from nature that came from those animals. And the, all of those migratory patterns got disrupted. So, so that too adds to, you know, to a significant uh, you know, cultural shift. Religion. Religion. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of new age belief that somehow native people are so spiritual and, you know, and we hear it all the time. And, and there's like this affinity that a certain class of, um, of new age, you know, uh, folks, um, have towards trying to understand. And what, and, and when I say try to understand, they don't really try to understand what our systems were, you know, not our belief systems necessarily, because beliefs make it sound like it's still something that we just believe in that, you know, that we're, that we are faith-based in some way. And, and we certainly weren't, but this, but this notion, uh, that, that many people take is that our religion, uh, that we, you can compare our culture to other religious, um, you know, system, uh, systems of religion, other faith bases. All the time, we hear it all the time. Well, oh, well, it's kind of like this. Well, no, it's, it, it, you know, look, there was almost a lot of pushback, especially from the Vatican, um, uh, from time to time, even, even recently when I think about the movie Avatar, there was this pushback because in the film, the, um, nature was treated almost as a deity, as a god. And so this notion that uh, that you would get pushback from Christians to say you can't relegate nature as you know somehow the supreme authority I guess or or you know the it's the it's the laws of God not the laws of nature so so that becomes very very problematic and our belief system was based on uh, our our faith was in nature and and so it wasn't a blind faith it wasn't a a faith that you know, when people think about faith, they think about something that, that can't be proven. You, you take it and you believe it, um, but you, and you build a belief system around something that is totally unprovable. That, you know, that, and that's what, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, or, um, um, Islam, these are considered faith-based religions because at some point, you have to believe about that the create the creation you know their, their genesis model or that that there's a god that there's that there's a deity that has a design for all that, all that stuff and you have to believe that there's no there's no way to prove that um, so our uh, systems which are, which are, were not and I don't want to call them religion and I don't even want to call them belief systems but the way we lived our lives was again. We, we metaphorically described our relationships to everything. The earth was our mother. You know, we, we, when we referred to the power of creation, although we had stories that where we might have said, uh, you know, uh, he who created you know, this or he, but we didn't have this no notion that, that there was a, a male creator or, or a female creator of all things, that there was a, you know, somebody who, who, um, had life all charted out. That's, that wasn't our culture. 
That wasn't what we, we didn't believe that. What we took from nature was the cues and the lessons that, that we had. So, so our um, culture was really based on the interaction that we had with nature and with creation, not necessarily a creator. You know, I know, you know, people now interchange the word creator, not even just now, they've been doing it, even, even Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence switches and puts the word creator, endowed by the creator, uh, instead of in, instead of by God. So this idea of switching the word creator for God, our people are really, really guilty of that. And we think if we say the word creator, that somehow we've We've we we added some nativeness to to a, to an otherwise Christian belief system. Uh, so when religion gets imposed upon you, and and this idea that you have to believe what they believe, and of course they introduce this this notion of religion at the same time that that major you know uh, plagues are being introduced to our people as well, and so we are convinced and we are we're lured to believe that that in order to survive this illness, it's only going to be their God that we have to embrace and we have to adopt, uh, and then you know and then to also um, to deal with the calamity of of these plagues, you you get convinced that oh where this your loved one is going is a better place because the your loved one is going to be with our god in our heaven and all that other stuff so you know you you use death as a way to not only convince uh people to believe a certain way the the threat of death but also the mourning process uh, of of major losses so i mean really religion yeah, and, and I'm, I don't have to get into the doctrine of Christian discovery and and the idea that Christianity was spread by the sword as uh, more so than by, you know, by by preaching and ministers. I mean, look when you think about how much uh, slaves were uh, were lured into Christianity and and how predominant um, uh, Christianity is amongst you know the Black American population, or how dominant uh, Catholicism and Christianity is amongst the um, uh, the, the indigenous Hispanic um, uh, assimilated population, and and of course it goes for the rest of the, uh, the indigenous population. Look, not only do we uh, we we sit back with a certain you know reverence because the uh, the pope turns a uh, a mohawk woman into a uh, into a saint and we and we and, and many embrace that as pride i mean look <laughs> degaguita uh kelly uh, degaguito she was um uh from the community that i'm from gonawage and my family was very devoted to her, towards this notion. Uh, in my great grandmother's house is right next door to the church that's supposed to be the, where her tomb is, where her burial place is. And I know, I, I know how much that was embraced. And this idea was was so prevalent as far as Native people that there became this this society, the Cattery Society. And and I was surprised when I went to Blackfoot Territory one time. Um, and I see these flyers put up for these meetings of the Cattery Society. Um, I also recall there's, there being a flyer that sent around where this this Cattery Society, and and again it's it's kind of a, a bastardizing of her name, um, was used to to sell babies. You know where you know for for you know fifteen dollars you could you could purchase a native baby, and so this is again this is again more of that culture shock. We didn't have this faith-based um, belief system, 
you know, this and 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 do understand that when our people first got introduced to some of this faith based, it was really, really strict. I mean, we're talking about Puritanism. We're talking about, you know, the, the idea that people were beaten and uh, and so many other things would, would would happen to people who who um, behaved outside of the the accepted parameters of this religious. I mean, there was fire and brimstone back then. It's not like Jesus loves you, you know, uh, like like it's it's preached today. This is this was heavy handedness, man. This is fire and brimstone stuff. So yeah, re religion and and how it was imposed on our people, uh, the death associated with uh, with religion. It, you know, it's it's an incredible. Uh, I mean, look. Guys like uh, I think Colonel Shivington, who who was an ordained minister, his you know in his military career, even as an ordained minister, he talked about uh, you know that he was put on the earth to kill Indians. That's what that's what his belief. He's the one who coined the phrase "nits make lice," which was to, to justify killing babies and killing uh, killing children. So, no, the, the connection between. Um, European Christianity and uh, and and death and the imposition of that religion on our people and, and other cultures too, it, it's significant. So, I mean, to, to understand that difference is uh, is to understand how dramatic and how how much again cognitive distance, how much tension gets created, even as our people embrace that uh, those uh, those religious beliefs. It, there's still an internal struggle that happens with people because the first, one of the things they have to do, and, and I know in, in uh, Stephen Newcomb's film, The Doctrine of Discovery, he talks about this with, uh, uh, about how, uh, um, and he interviewed Rivera uh, uh, in, in, this, in the film, and they talked about how Native people had to be convinced that everything they knew from their entire existence was wrong. And that it was satanic to believe what we believed was considered a sin within the the uh, religion that was being imposed upon us. So, and and of course they would also associate our language, you know, any aspects of our culture, our dance, our music, anything that we did would be viewed as satanic. You know, the idea that that there there has been somewhat of a resurgence in uh, in in our culture and and. You know, and we were able to retrieve and and re you know uh, I, I guess almost rejoin some of that uh, that identity is pretty remarkable. You know, I've mentioned this in previous shows, but there was a time that that we ourselves took our identity cues from what Hollywood was producing. I mean, we would put on a Plains Indian headdress, even as Haudenosaunee, and that wasn't even our culture. We would try to emulate. Uh, in 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 trying to assert our identity as Haudenosaunee, we were taking our cues from uh, from Hollywood, and I, I, that's kind of disgraceful. But uh, but that's how far gone it was. So we 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 can only act like we knew uh, like uh, this identity because it was stripped away. It was stripped away, you know, at, at the family level, you know, at the religious level, all all of that stuff. So I mean, it's. It's it's pretty incredible, and 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 I and I'm bringing this stuff up because I think it's important that people realize just how um, just how much of a shock it was to our systems, and why even today we still struggle with so much of this stuff.
Hey, we're pretty much at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take a break and we're going to come back here. I've got more to talk about here. This isn't, it, it doesn't just stop with, with family and religion. This is, this culture shock goes much deeper than that. And we'll talk about more of that when we come back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. All right, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Hey, I want to remind people that if you're not um, subscribed to our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV, you may be missing some content. And I also encourage you to subscribe to our to our podcasts. Uh, this way, you'll get notifications, and you can listen to the, the programs when you're on the go, whether you're in the car or at home. Uh, you, you can have uh, Alexa <laughs> or your your uh, smart speakers play uh, play our podcast. Just uh, just ask them to search for let's talk native with john kane podcast i also want to remind people that we are on patreon and so i would be greatly appreciative uh if you would uh if you would join our uh our uh, go to our patreon page which is uh patreon.com slash let's talk native and um and support the program through patreon all right um talking about some of the the the, the culture shock and some of the distinction and some of the problems uh, that we become confronted with, you know, and I'm not going to necessarily get into, into the medicine issue. Although, you know, this, this idea that when illness, you know, would come to our territories, they would use religion, not just their, again, their idea of medicine. Um, but yeah, they would use the idea of illness to, to promote the religion. But, but, I, but I will say, we had other issues associated with our lifestyle. We, uh, the trade and, um, and the economies that we had were not about accumulating wealth. I mean, we, we did store foods and, and that kind of stuff. And we did conduct um, trade with, you know, from community to community and, and with other native peoples and ultimately even uh, with the Europeans. But once it turned into something that was more uh, aligned with the European ideas of capitalism, that started to change things. Resources become depleted. The, the idea that, um, uh, that personal accumulation of wealth, how you measure somebody's status within a community would change dramatically. Uh, in, in, in our culture, a person's status was measured by how, um, how much they gave you know, of themselves to their community. That's how, how what people you know, uh, strive to do was to be you know, leaders through their community, not by accumulation of wealth. So that, you know, that too, you know, changes um, things dramatically. And, and of course, this, you know, this actually gets to the point where, where money becomes, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, basis for, for work and uh, for product and trade and, and all of that other stuff. Um, one of the things that I've got to also bring up when it comes to, you know, talking about money is, is this idea of how does a community generate 
capital or, or wealth, um, this idea of public finance. Look, we were not only always opposed to this notion of taxation, and this was a, you know, a concept that was introduced by Europeans. In fact, they arguably taxation was one of the, the reasons that you know, the, the colonists you know, claimed to be fighting for independence from, uh, you know, from, from Great Britain. But this idea of, of, of taking money from people to support a, government, a governmental function, that's something we still don't do. I mean, well, there, there may be ways that there are fees, I guess, but the idea of, of outright taxation, for instance, I live here in Seneca Nation, the, the idea that the Seneca Nation would try to tax its people for its property or for sales tax or, um, you know, or for any, you know, to, to generate revenue um, is off of off of goods and service or or, or income is really kind of I mean it's not even something uh, contemplated it is it is that foreign to us even still I mean this many years into assimilation and indoctrination taxation is still something that we reject out of hand so not only do we reject uh, paying taxes to the state or to the federal government although more so to the federal government than we comply more with the feds than with the state. So we, we not only push back against taxes being imposed on us by the outside, but we also refuse to, you know, to, to accept the idea that even within our communities, it's not that we don't have the power to, uh, to create a taxation. It's just that ideologically, it's something that we, we oppose. So the idea of trying to come up with, uh, with means for, for public finance, the idea that we would have um, create institutions to solve problems or, or, or services or, or to pay our leaders, that's something that's, that's relatively recent. And you know what? The first ideas of, of funded government comes from outside funding, you know, commitments that the, the state or the federal government would make in monies that they owed to us for land sessions or, or, or whatever um, would be turned into almost like acts of charity coming in to fund our tribal governments, as they call them. So that all of that is a culture shock. And that's why today. These, not only is this idea of, of a funded government something that doesn't ever really set well within any of our territories, but the idea of, of elected governments, the idea that, that we would participate in elections, we don't participate very highly in elections. You know, the, the Seneca Nation, they had an election just last week. It was their, the Seneca Party Caucus, but most people realize that that's, you know— almost uh, tantamount to their, to their national election, only 1,500 people voted. I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, a, a, a nation that claims, you know, 8,000 enrolled members. I don't know how many are of voting age, but 1,500 is a pretty low turnout. And, you know, and if you look at, and I've talked about this before, you look at other communities like Akwasasne or Kanawage or, or Six Nations, Six Nations, 4% four, 4% vote in those elections. And there's a reason for that because, in many of these territories, there is the government that Canada or the United States, you know, or the province or the or the the states in the United States recognize. But then there's our uh, some semblance of our traditional governments that, that still remain, whether it's you know a a, a council or the clan system, or, you know, or the longhouse, whatever you know, however you, you want to frame it. I mean, I don't. I, I wish I could honestly say that there is that there are good examples of where the Guyana or Goa, our our original um, system of governance um, that 
that defines Haudenosaunee. I wish I could say that that exists someplace and, and operates in, in, in its truest sense, but I'm, I'm afraid it doesn't. And, and part of the reason it doesn't is because it's undermined by these, these imposed governments. So that's a culture shock that we're still experiencing every day. I mean, on every one of these territories, and, and I know this is true not just in Haudenosaunee territories, but across. I mean, look, we've seen the tensions uh, and talked about them on this program in Navajo territory. Um, the, again, the reliance that, that the, the tribal governments have on being led by the nose by their, by their white lawyers or their lobbyists or their consultants. I mean, all of that stuff leads to a disconnect between a government that is not a part of our culture. That, that does create a tension within our communities um, and, and the people. I mean, and, and this is, this is a, a, still a major problem today. So this isn't something that, uh, you know, that a change happened. I mean, when, when the, the Seneca Nation adopted a constitution in 1848, I think it was, um, it was, it was really embraced only by handfuls of dozens of people. Somebody I've heard some places said it was only 30 or 40 people that brought, that brought in a constitutional form of government into, into the, uh, Seneca territories. And like I said, while there is many, in many ways, uh, become a dependency on these, um, elected systems, uh, in their functionality and in the institutions that, uh, have been created by them and the outside governments. They there's still a lot of resentment and a lot of rejection about the authority that uh, th that these governments have. So that's something that is born out of a, 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 a again a, a, a cultural um, shift, a cultural shock, as I, as I say, um, that we still haven't reconciled and and probably won't reconcile. And, you know, we're seeing in many communities where there's a, more of a, of a of an attempt to return to some semblance of uh, of traditional values and, and, and governance, uh, and you know, trying to marginalize uh, the, the the dependency on this institutionalized governance that that has uh, been imposed on us from the outside, and so that's that's a a, a major issue. Again, uh, the idea of of these institutions, and I'm not not just talking about governance here. I'm talking about courts. I'm talking about police. I'm talking about services to uh, you know to, to families and that kind of stuff. This dependency on inst institutions is still something that that doesn't um, always get get embraced by uh, by native people. And I don't mean just. Traditional people look. Even people who adopted, you know, Christian beliefs, or who served in the military, or who have who have demonstrated significant parts of their lives, you know, have been changed by this assimilation and indoctrination. They still cling to some things that that reject other elements of that indoctrination. This is again, this is, is still is a part of that that culture shock, that that intergenerational trauma, and and look. What what came with all of this imposition are not only some very very um, um, traumatic experiences, and I'm, and I'm not just talking about the massacres or the, um, the the diseases and the plagues that came through, but residential schools, the idea of of losing control of certain aspects of our our lives, the, having our lands uh, swindled out from uh, underneath us, all of that stuff has 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 left left us still reeling 
look, I, you know, people say, well, that's, that's 150 years ago. It was 200 years ago. Look, for, as for white people, 200 years, you know, in the United States might seem like a, um, an eternity. For, but when you do a timeline of native culture that is go, that dates back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that 200 years is uh, is is a is a blink of an eye. So when when we say we still haven't adjusted, look, we haven't even adjusted physically to the change in our diets. I talked about food earlier. We have the highest incidences of uh, of diabetes and, uh, and and other dietary ailments because our bodies genetically ha- couldn't catch up to to the this huge cultural change in in our diets and that kind of stuff. So when I suggest that um, you know that this 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 change and the shock is 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 still ra- a rather sudden thing, being only 150 or 200 years uh, old. Yeah, I realize that some people are going to say, "Well, that's that, you know, that's a long time." Well, n- not so much. We're talking about you know, you know, a half a dozen or, or you know, uh, generations. You know, we often talk so, talk about um, our commitment to seven generations, and it's not that it, we're, we. This isn't about the seventh generation. It, this is the idea of looking back and looking forward to uh, to generations that. Of, of our ancestors that we never have known and never will know directly know directly look i've posed for pictures with family where we, we could have five generations represented in a thing in a single shot six generations is, is uh is is tough and seven is damn near impossible because we don't live that long to uh, to have that extended a family generationally so when we try to make a commitment to the faces, our relatives that we will never see. That means that we can't wait. We, these are we have to you know alter our decisions. This is a significant part of our culture. That again, with with the imposition uh, of assimilation and indoctrination of the of the European mindset, one where where we're not supposed to. I mean, it, you know, the Christian belief system almost opposes this idea that you that you have a commitment to to future generations that long i mean it is they they are you know basically oppose each other the the idea of capitalism is is based on how much money what's your return on investment how soon can you can you make your money back on you know on on a business proposition it's always about you know almost immediate gratification or where you can see in your lifetime the 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 fruits of your labor you don't put in an investment, uh, you know, for your children, your great grandchildren, and or, and you damn sure don't make an investment of your time for seven generations. That's again a huge cultural shock from from who we were, you know. And, and part of the reason I even bring this conversation up, I, I had somebody, I, I was thinking this already, but then I had somebody ask me on Facebook, "Well, what's the solution to all this madness that's out there?" And and I've talked a little bit about uh, in previous shows about. Um, making governance and making these institutions less, less relevant in your life. Uh, you know, one of the examples, uh, you, you know, is, is playing out in, in a few Western cities where, where they've declared themselves autonomous zones. And basically they're saying, no, we're not going to call the cops. In fact, we're, we're, our message, and there's been, <laughs> there's been elected officials are saying, do not call the cops unless you absolutely have to. 
you know, part of this is the the Karen syndrome, where all these these women that you know, white women calling up the cops just because they, they had some brush with a black person or whatever else, so they'll call a cop because he's a black person in a swimming pool or barbecuing or you know, or, or the Central Park is, is, is situation comes to mind. But but a lot of this is saying, look, if if you want to prevent police abuse, keep the police out of your, out of, you know out of your neighborhoods. And the way to keep your police, and, and look, I know you'll hear some of these these right wingers saying, "Well, if you weren't committing crimes, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have anything to be you know uh, have the cops in your neighborhoods for." No, that's not the point. But we should stop calling the cops. We should deal with this stuff locally. And this gets back down to to making a bit of a, a of a cultural shift. If we try to solve as many of our problems locally at the family level first, and then locally, we can create. Uh, or, or recreate this idea that that problems can be resolved at the local level without the, the use of institutions, whether it's native institutions that emulate the outside or whether it's outside institutions like the courts, like the cops, like CPS, like so many of these, uh, these other things. There are ways that, that without this idea of rule of law, and I love this one. They go, oh, yeah, the United States is a country that operates under rule of law. Well, you know, that's not entirely true. I mean, it's in fact, most of many of their laws are unjust. So rule of law does not necessarily um, mean has nothing to do with justice. In fact, it can it can be part of what causes the uh, the inequality the, because the laws are skewed. So what do we do? Well, one of the things that we can do to avoid this idea of rule of law being imposed on us from the outside is we create our own community standards. And those community standards can be uh, affected by, you know, or, or can have effect on everything from the drug problems to help them. Uh, when I think about some of these territories that wanted to limit the traffic coming through because of COVID-19 there, if we had higher community standards, if we recognized our extended families more and, and our, our role within, uh, within not just a, um, a nation, but within a community, we could we could certainly have a a, a significantly um, uh, better uh, response to to things like like a pandemic. But certainly, when crime happens on a territory, uh, like I said, the abuse that happens, domestic abuse, if we had higher standards at at, at our at the family level and at the community level. We could put the pressures. Look, I'm not saying you know that we need to write off you know um, every everybody who's, who drinks a beer or, or, or who may have had a might have had a, a domestic disturbance. But if we don't do anything to bring them back in to um, to responsibility, and we don't, if all you do is is you call an outside authority and say, "There, now you're in trouble with them." Well, you didn't do anything within a community to restore not not just pride and dignity and responsibility. This ends up being a a crime and punishment thing, not uh, not a com a community embrace thing. So, look, I I don't know how. I, I honestly can't tell you how effective these autonomous zones have been. In uh, it's a relatively new thing for for many of these communities, but the, but the concept is not brand new. This is this is a part of uh, you know, bringing back some of the the cultural values, at least from a from a, a Haudenosaunee or an Indigenous people standpoint. So I think the whole idea that that we as as communities stop relying on the institutions so much. 
uh, and and start really you know developing um, more responsibility to and for each other. Uh, that's something that that any community and native community or non native community, like I said, these autonomous zones these, these are happening in cities, not just in neighborhoods, and and that's a much bigger challenge than than look if you if you got twenty houses in, in a group you know, then those 20 families should have a relationship with each other. I understand the way housing has taken place on, uh, on most native territories um, is unnatural. You know, it, you know, whether it's a lottery system or, you know, somebody just gets, this is where you get to build your house. It's not grown out of, uh, out of a, a family expansion. So oftentimes you're, you're thrust into a circumstance and of course housing shortages make it even more difficult, uh, you know, uh, not just on territory, but off territory. We, we don't get to choose our neighbors. We, we, we look at a place to live based usually what our neighbors are and, and, and the relationship we have with them, if we have any at all, you know that's that's secondary to uh, to other other things that we look uh, look at in terms of a home and and that's unfortunate but we but regardless of what your circumstance is you can create the relationships that that need to be created so it's one of the ways that we can offset what i began talking about this idea of cultural shock culture shock and this cognitive dissonance there is there is the opportunity to bring um to return ourselves to a different understanding uh, of our relationships, of our families and of our, of our communities, of our nations. And, and, and again, I'm not talking about a revolution. I'm, I'm just talking about things that we can do from a behavior standpoint. Again, cognitive dissonance is this idea that, that the behavior that we, uh, that we've adopted because of so many of, of assimilation and indoctrination is inconsistent with what we still retain as our core values and those core values tied to our identity. Look, some of the things that we do simply just, I mean, it it almost defies logic because joining the, uh, joining the military, for instance, a military that, that was responsible for murdering our own people, uh, regardless of how long you want to put that back to our relationship with the United States is, is not a pleasant history. There's almost, there's almost no part of our relationship with the United States that is not born out of conflict. And yet we not only enlist ourselves, but we encourage our children to do this in, in, in the military service of, this, of, of a country that is an oppressive power throughout the whole world. So, so we do this for a number of reasons. You know, part of it is is indoctrination. Part of it's the propaganda. Part of it is is trying to reach some level of acceptance. You know, in uh, you know, even to our with our oppressors. But also, part of it comes from the, the limited opportunities we have in our territories. But even having done those things, having served in the military, I've talked to I've talked to veterans, young and old, and and asked them, you know, so why did you go to Vietnam? They don't know. And, and, and as they have in their later parts of their life reflected on what they did in the service of the United States and who they had to commit atrocities against, they struggle not just with uh, uh, PTSD, but again, this is still p- part of that cognitive dissonance. The idea that, that they've got to justify. And look, there's, there's a, so much uh, worship and embellishment and, and uh, 
uh, of heroism and, and that kind of stuff. The idea that we want to romanticize military service and even war. There's nothing romantic about killing people. And, and that's what military is for. I mean, I'm not suggesting anybody who's ever joined the military has, has personally or physically taken a life, but you know, whether, whether you're one of, one of, you know, several hundred or a thousand on a, on an aircraft carrier, um, that takes lives, then you, you, you still were, were, were part of that. So, you know, and again, I don't want to dwell just on military service. I know a lot of people are, are, have a lot of indifference about all of that, but it, but it's, it's an example you know, much of the, you know, what, what, what um, veterans um, experience after their service is, is this idea that they've got to somehow be re-acculturated back to their, to their communities. Well, that's even a bigger challenge when, uh, when people return to Native communities. So, I mean, this, this is, uh, that, that's a specific example uh, of, a, of even within American cultures, the, the, the struggles, but you take that and you, and you, um, and you compound it by the culture shock that our people go through because of assimilation and indoctrination. And, and it, and it's even worse. So again, I, I think to understand why we struggle uh, and why we resist assimilation and maybe resist it more today than we did maybe even a, a generation ago, is because we uh, we can now acknowledge what uh, you know what that, how bad that assimilation um, has violated our our core identities our our core values and why this uh, this behavior that has been um, uh, imposed upon us in terms of the expectation of our behavior doesn't match who we are as native people this is and and this is going to continue to be a problem I mean because there's only there's only Look, there's only two ways to uh, to to solve cultural or cognitive dissonance. That's either to abandon your values or change your behavior. And we know the behavior that we see all around us in in uh, in the American culture is it's it's not conducive to peace. It, it is becoming more and more violent on a on a daily basis. Now, how do you how do you respond to that violence? Well, you, there there does have to be pushback. But if you don't have some some philosophy associated with what you're pushing for, not just what you're pushing against, then you can find yourself in a perpetual state of conflict. But if you're trying to push towards something that changes your behavior to match your core values. That's that's the solution to the problem. Change your behavior to match your core values, regardless of what the the pressures are from the outside. And you know, so I guess in the long and the short of it, that's that's really what the show is about. What the show is really about is trying to solve the cognitive dissonance of assimilation and try to minimize the effects of culture shock. Look, I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, again, uh, share the show, support the show. Uh, share the podcast, share the videos, and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Let's Talk Native TV. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.